Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 32, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name, again, is Rick. I'm author of the just-released book, The God Who Fights For You, and last year, Spiritual Grit, and it's two companion devotions, one for adults and one for teenagers. And before that, The Jesus-Centered Life and The Jesus-Centered Bible. Uh, and today, by the way, is the 10th episode in this series we've called Jesus Answers Life's Essential Questions. And what's odd about that is that for the Jesus-Centered Bible, we tried to isolate the, the sort of essential questions all human beings have, and we kind of narrowed it down to nine questions. And I took those nine questions and I did a slow walk through the Gospels looking for the ways Jesus answered each of those nine questions. And that's the series we've been doing all summer. And you'd think after nine episodes, we'd be done with the nine essential questions. But all along, I had this kind of, you know, nudge inside that this might go longer than nine. And I thought we might loop back to a couple of the nine questions. But actually, I realized there's two sort of PS questions that aren't on that list of nine essential questions. They're sort of sub-questions but I think they're universal and they are, we've kind of left them out of this series because they're, they're, they're like I said, sub questions. So I thought we would tackle those two in these two additional episodes in the series. So we're, got, we're calling these essential questions over time, um, two extra episodes. So in this episode, we'll focus on one of those two questions that I think still needs to be focused on. And that is, Will I ever be enough? Will I ever be enough? And joining me today, as she does pretty much on half of our episodes, is the one and only the Becky Nader. So Hello. there she is. Maybe you could, uh, maybe you could uh, tell the little story you just told me about um, how this question, will I ever be enough, kind of dropped in your lap even today. And we have like a little bonus aspect of this episode we're going to uh, uh, focus on what I call an echo question, a question that, that is related to this one, but different. So maybe you could introduce both of those. Well, if you're a woman who's on Instagram, the am I enough or you're enough um, memes are often passed around. But today, a good friend of mine um, and a client of mine and someone who I deeply respect um, is kind of coming out about something that only her really close uh, friends and family knew, which is that she chose to um, she chose sobriety three years ago um, when she she hit a point when she realized that she didn't have control or freedom um, from her alcohol use, and she has just like grown from the ashes from that. She's releasing a book in a few weeks that's being published by Forbes. That's called um, "Hitting Rock Middle." And um, she wrote this today because she's going to be telling in the book that she struggled with alcohol and about what happened. And so she wanted to let her friends on, on Instagram know that didn't know that this about her. But she wrote here, fundamentally, my fear in telling you stemmed from deep fear that people would discover I was an imposter and not actually good enough. I thought people would see my many flaws and failures and they'd no longer trust me or want to work with me. And I was like, this is just this, this universal lie and this universal feeling that, um, that our deepest struggles and the things that, um, we fail at mean that we are not good enough. Um, but kind of the, I am I enough's BFF, (laughs) as I told Rick, when we were talking about this yesterday is, Am I too much? Um, because I think part of, of, of saying I'm not enough is that sometimes we also have this deep belief that we need to quiet ourselves down and not be so much the way that we were made um, because it's just too much for people. <laughs> yeah. And one of the, I, I'd say one of the core threads that Becky, you and I share 
is that we've experienced um, the kind of the depth of both of these questions, the wrestling match that, that we have with both of these questions. Both of us have wrestled with, am I really enough? And both of us have wrestled with the, uh, the sort of input into our lives that has said in the past, you're too much. So you, you get it coming and going, <laughs> these two questions. It's you, you're, you're left in this sort of awkward, torturous place where you're simultaneously convinced that you're not enough and that you're too much at the same time. So it'll be interesting to explore how Jesus enters into this tension. But I've been, I was telling Becky that I've been listening for the last few weeks, and I think I mentioned on one of the previous podcasts, I've been listening to an Andrew Osenga album called The Painted Desert, which was, it, it was officially released in 2018, but he released it only on MP3, and it just kind of trickled out over 2018, and now the whole album is available. And I've been uh, listening to it on repeat for about three weeks now. I think I've probably listened to it uh, a dozen and a half times already. It's just, uh, I think, the most powerful, invasive in a good way album I've heard in years. And Andrew Osenga is one of my favorite singer-songwriters to begin with. He used to be lead singer and songwriter for um, uh, a rock band called The Normals about 20 years ago, which I still think uh, The Normals produced the best Christian rock album I've ever heard. Uh, and Andrew Osinga has now gone on to a solo career and he was with Cademan's Call for a while. But now he, he creates these solo albums that, um, that are not widely listened to, uh, but are so beautifully and artistically constructed and the lyrics are just like surgery. So uh, I've been listening to this album, and, and in the middle of the last time I listened to it, I, I realized that he, it, the lyrics to a song titled Worry that he sings on this album uh, directly address this issue of will I ever be enough. So I thought it'd be good for us to listen just to a little portion of Andrew Osenga's song, Worry. Here we go. There you have a little portion of Worry by Andrew Osenga. And uh, the, the song is really sort of a laundry list of the things that um, grip us with anxiety and the things that get in the way of our trust of Jesus uh, and create a struggle to trust him, actually. And in this song, he, uh, his lyrics build from 
sort of the, the surface explanations for why we worry and have anxiety to the underlying reason there at the end, which is we worry that we are just never going to be enough, ever. And how do we get that idea that we would never be enough, ever? Well, we get it from uh, the disappointments that we experience in life and the relational mirrors we have in our life of um, our hopes and dreams for richness in relationship and in, and in the impact we'll have in the world, and then dealing with the reality of that, that it's never what we dream of. And so, uh, you know, Becky Nieder, I'm, I'm wondering that I think the big question here is this question, will I ever be enough? Why do you think that this question, this one question haunts us so much in life? What, what do you think are the, the, the uh, sort of underlying reasons why this thing shows up in every single person's life? I think that the enemy is super, super smart because he knows that all he has to really do is, is kind of inch us off course. And one of the, the biggest ways that he does that is by kind of whispering in our ear constantly that if, if we, if people really knew, if they really knew how inadequate we really are and what we really struggle with, if they really knew all the things, then they would know that you don't, that you don't have what it takes in your job, in your marriage, in your family, as a parent, in your friendships, that basically if, if someone knew the full extent of the truth about you, that they would know for certain that you were not a good person, that you were not as qualified as you um, maybe are selling yourself to be, if they really knew. And that I think was really deeply rooted in what my friend said too, is like, if, if you really knew, if you really knew my struggles, if you really knew how, how, how rock bottom my life got, um, and the things that I have done, um, you would, you wouldn't trust me anymore. You wouldn't see me as a qualified person to speak into your life. And behind that is just, you know, I love that he, he touched on every, of every single main thing that we worry about. Am I, am I good enough for my job or are they going to replace me if they find out that I'm not really um, good and I'm not as qualified or I, I don't have what it takes? Um, if you're a business owner, you feel like this every single day, right? Um, what if I don't actually have what it takes to do the best work that I could possibly do? Um, we worry about failing our families. Like what if, my, what if my kids aren't telling me the truth because I haven't earned trust with them and they're doing bad things and they could harm themselves. And I mean, yeah. <laughs> there's a spiral, right? Like the, yeah. sp the spiral of the mom's brain yeah. um, so and dad's right. Like I, I think, what if I can't provide, what if I lose my job? What if, um, you know, the way I discipline my kids ends up having them resent me later. Like I resent my parents or, you know, all of these things just consume, but they're all rooted in this idea that like, that the way God made me, the way he prepared me and what he did isn't actually good enough. It's not yeah. actually good enough. That's so good. And I, I, the thing that you said kind of repeatedly, um, there that I just, just sticks out to me is if they really knew if they really knew. And here's the insidious way that kind of worms its way into our soul. We know, we've been told over and over again, Jesus does really know. He sees everything. So uh, think of how insidious this works against our relationship and our intimacy with him. He's the one who's supposed to really know, and we're guarding um, ourselves from so many other people in our lives so that they won't really know. And here is this person claims to be the one who does really know. How could he possibly, possibly have affection for us if he really knew? Uh, one of the things I think, uh, I love the way you started with that explanation too, that you started out with the enemy of God. And um, I think that's so important. I, I don't think we can say this enough, that Jesus has made it clear what the motivation of his enemy is, and that is to kill and steal and destroy. There is no thought that Satan has that isn't connected to one of those three things, 
killing you, stealing from you, or destroying you. And the way that he does that, physical destruction means nothing to him because he knows the reality that we are destined to live with Jesus in the kingdom of God. So what difference does it really make if we are physically destroyed? He wants to destroy our soul. And the best way to destroy our soul is to destroy our identity. And the best way to destroy our identity is to insert the cancer of, am I really enough into our life? Well, and there's no, there's no greater robber than worry, right? <laughs> worry is, it, it's, it's, it does nothing for you. It, worry change, it does in no way changes the circumstances of your life, right? But it can consume you to a point where it, it creates dissatisfaction in your life. It will isolate you from relationships. It will, you know, all of these things, there's no greater thief in the night than worry. And the, the question is then why do we still worry? Because we all know what you just said. And I think the reason that we still worry is because worry represents a kind of a sense of false control over our circumstances. If we can worry about it, then we feel like we might ha um, have some kind of strange control over these circumstances. If we worry enough about it, maybe something will change, or at least we're attending to the thing that is threatening to hurt us when God doesn't seem to be attending to it. And so we, we, our worry is really a replacement for the inactivity of God in, in some ways in our life. I was on this men's retreat. I think I've told uh, some version of the story in the past, but it's just such an iconic thing, a tipping point in my life. I was on this men's retreat with my church and there was about 120 guys on this retreat. And my friend, Bob Krulish was leading this retreat and he did something really brilliant. The, the, the Friday night that the retreat started uh, about halfway through that opening session, he asked all these guys to write on a piece of paper, one lie they believe about themselves. It was as open-ended as that. He wasn't guiding or directing this question anyway. He just wanted to see what was in the room. Uh, uh, basically, see what deception was in the room. So the simple question was, write on a piece of paper one lie that you believe about yourself. And then we collected all of these papers, and he and I went through them um, that night in preparation for the morning. And the huge, overwhelming majority of the scribbled notes on those pieces of paper were some version of, I'm not enough, and I'm never enough. So most of the men, I'd say 90 to 95% of the men in that room wrote something like, I'm never enough and I never will be. Um, it was just devastating to read it. Um, and it makes you realize that how can so many men think that they might be the only one who's really wrestling with that inside when almost all of men and women are wrestling with this? We're isolated in our relationship to this question. Um, and it does, it, it smells like Satan to me. I remember that night I thought, oh, isn't Satan both shrewd and lazy? He's found a question, an insidious question to plant in us that works over and over and over again, no matter who he tries it on. And therefore, he's lazy. Why try something different if you've got uh, something that really seems to work? So, so I know, Becky, you've been through so many like epic transitions in your life in the last couple of years where, you know, if I stand back and, and think about what you've been through, I think the rhythm that you've gone through is your life has been deconstructed and reconstructed several times over now. And I'm just wondering, because your identity has been a construction zone <laughs> during this time, how, how have your relationships during this time impacted the way you are answering this question inside this will i will i ever be enough how have your relationships during this reconstruction deconstruction time um, affected the way you answer that question inside you know this this whole epic <laughs> adventure that i've been on has actually completely changed the relationships that i have um, it really really clearly identified the relationships that I that would would be there for me when when the the hailstorms came down and everything was gone, and it and it very clearly revealed to me the relationships that 
were, were just dust. <laughs> they mm. blew away in the wind. Mm. And, um, and then in addition to that, there's this whole new group of people who are deeply involved in my life that I didn't even know six months ago that mm. I didn't even, I only maybe had been following them on Instagram that have, that I have almost daily conversations with, um, over Marco Polo and different ways that we communicate that are extremely for me, like more for me than some of my family members. Um, and so I think in a lot of ways, like just having everything just so rawly and vulnerably out there and having this giant mess be just so kind of public because, you know, Rick Lawrence made me tell it all on the podcast. <laughs> um, having that out there just made it so that I really like actually don't care about what people think about me as much anymore. I, I'm so much stronger in the identity that I, that I have been made in and I'm, I can very easily identify the lies now, whereas before it was very confusing to me to tell the difference. And I think now I can just see it and I'm like, that's not true. And I'm, I'm, I move on from it a lot quicker than I did. I just, I, it's been the rawest adventure, but also just the strength that I feel, um, all around me in every part of my life is so much richer than it ever has been. And what's interesting about that too, is that Jesus has told us part of his mission, his passion in life is to take what Satan means for evil and use it for beauty in our lives. This is how Jesus is an artist, a redemptive artist. He takes the, the crap, the ugly that Satan intends to use to destroy in our lives. And Jesus takes that very thing as we yield it to him and turns it into beauty. And this rhythm of answering the question, will I ever be enough? And you get it, we getting these nasty, murderous, destructive answers to that question through the filters of the relationships in our life. And then Jesus takes that and deconstructs um, and opens us to be reconstructed and plants new voices in our lives that begin to embrace and reflect the, uh, an answer to the question, will I ever be enough, that is positive, that we start to have this glimmer of hope that what, who he has created and revealed us to be is enough. And this, this rhythm, going from the deconstruction to the reconstruction around this question, I think is something we can, um, uh, we can sort of isolate or spotlight in the encounters that Jesus had with, others, with other people. Um, he is always uh, sort of uh, orbiting his relationships and his encounters with people around this question, as it turns out. Am I, will I ever be enough? But he answers it differently according to the people he's around. So, so uh, uh, what we're going to do now is uh, kind of focus on some of his interactions with both who you might call the self-satisfied and self-justified, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, and also the self-loathing self -loathing or the self-doubters, the people who are answering that question, will I ever be enough with, nope, I don't think so. So we'll explore these encounters. And then at the tail end of this, I think we're going to loop back to the echo question we have, am I too much? So let's, uh, uh, let's, let's take a little survey, a little sampler survey, through a few encounters Jesus has with both the, um, the sort of self-satisfied and the self-loathing. And in some of these stories, he's encountering both of them at the same time, both kinds of people at the same time. So I'm going to just skip through some examples and then we'll stop. And Becky, we'll just pick out whatever we see in the way that Jesus is interacting differently with these two groups of people. So we'll just pick out whatever kind of uh, surfaces here. So the first one, is in Matthew chapter 9, and it's, it's where Jesus uh, uh, first forgives and then later heals a paralyzed man. So it starts in verse 1 and goes to verse 6. I think I'm going to read this one real quick since it's short. Jesus climbed into a boat and went back across the lake to his own town. Some people brought to him a paralyzed man on a mat. And seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, Be encouraged, my child. Your sins are forgiven. Well, but some of the teachers of religious law said to themselves, well, that's blasphemy. 
does he think he's God? And Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you have such evil thoughts in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I'll prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat and go home. And the man jumped up and went home. Fear swept through the crowd as they saw this happen, and they praised God for giving humans such authority. Of course, the people still didn't quite realize that he wasn't just a human with extraordinary authority, that he was actually the Messiah, the Son of God. But here we have this encounter where he's, he's uh, encountering a man who's paralyzed, and uh, of course this man must be thinking a hundred times a day, I will never be enough because I can't do anything. I'm dependent on others to help me. Will this ever be enough? Here's a man who has that question sort of shoved in his face every day, and he's put there in front of the uh, teachers of religious law who are quite self-satisfied in how they answer that question. Of course I'm enough. I follow the law. So what do you see um, in, in Jesus's interaction with these two different kinds of people here, Becky, that starts to get at um, what he's trying to do with each group. I guess that's a way of putting it. Let's just fish around a little bit. I was thinking earlier that there's no group of people really um, that I can think of who deal with this, I'm not enough, than people who are in ministry. Um, it's so plaguing to be in the spotlight like that and to have just this kind of ultimate demanded perfection um, or, or else you will lose your job. <laughs> um, uh, in this state of time. And so it's no, it's no stranger to me that the Pharisees were also kind of brought up in that same culture of always having to um, just be hyper vigilant towards anybody who might be a fake or a phony or who is, you, you know, blaspheming the Lord. They're, they were hyper vigilant because that's just kind of how it is when you're in ministry. And I, 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 um, I mourn for people who are in that, who, who decide to take on that, that kind of role. Hmm. Um, I was in that role. I worked in the church and I saw just how hard, um, the entire culture was on the people who decided to devote their lives to being in full-time ministry. It, it's a lot of sacrifices in so many ways, financially, and, um, you give so much time and there's never you're never enough. <laughs> like there's never enough time to, to give. Um, there's always more that you could be doing. And, um, so I, I just see a lot of that in this story. I see a lot of just like what it feels like to be in, in a ministry environment and, um, and that their reaction is to kind of try and draw Jesus into that. Like, Hey, we have to deal with this all the time. So if you're going to be one of us, like you have to realize that you can't just, you know, go around doing these things. Yeah. And you know, I, it's interesting too, that when you think about where, where you're headed here, Becky, uh, with these uh, teachers of the religious law, they're also under tremendous uh, pressure and expectation to keep it all together, which yeah. is what creates sort of a poser mentality among them because they know that they have to keep up their image of those who have it all together. Um, if they don't have it all together, then who's gonna trust them? Um, if they don't hide the fact that they're not really enough and they, and they hide it by, by sort of militantly uh, uh, defending their perfectness, um, which is, makes sense. That's what we do when we wanna defend against our vulnerability. We, we come out strong, but it's interesting that what Jesus says to this, to the man who's paralyzed, who is living every day, recognizing he's not enough. He, the first thing he says to this man is be encouraged. My child, your sins are forgiven. He's, he's starting to lay a foundation for how the man can feel like he is enough. And really what he's first targeting is sin. That, the, that sin is what makes us sort of in an anchoring way not be enough. Mm. We have a, a central sense that, that this hidden sin that we have, the stuff that we don't show others, are, is what makes us never enough. And Jesus starts out his interaction with this man who is already primed 
and vulnerable, uh, he, he starts out his interaction by saying, hey, be encouraged. The deepest issue you have, I'm taking care of that. Your sins are forgiven. And then later, just as a sort of a PS, he heals him also <laughs> as a sort of an exclamation mark to the Pharisees. But, but he's, he's uh, simultaneously, I think, here trying to puncture the self-satisfied veneer that these Pharisees have. Why? Because if that veneer isn't punctured, they will not be open to hearing uh, or receiving how Jesus makes them truly right. How Jesus answers that question, are you enough? Um, they won't be open to his answer yet, as long as they have this shellac of posing around them. But with people who are already there, he doesn't have to do that kind of work. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They're ready to hear what he has to say. There's a similar story just a little bit later on there in, in Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus uh, calls Matthew to be one of his disciples. And um, Matthew uh, decides to follow Jesus. And he is a tax collector. So by definition, the worst of the worst in Hebrew society. He's a betrayer. He's a backstabber. And yet Jesus sees something in him and asks him to follow. And then Matthew responds immediately. And then he invites Jesus and his disciples to come to his house as dinner guests. Something that no Pharisee or teacher of religious law would ever consider. Because talk about the worst of the worst. You would never go to somebody's house and give sort of your tacit approval of them by having dinner with them. So the Pharisees, of course, see this, and they ask his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Um, I mean, <laughs> that word probably in the original language was even stronger than scum. And Jesus hears this, and he says, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. How, how do you translate Jesus's answer to them there, Becky, how, how would you re-paraphrase the healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do? What is he trying to say? I mean, this is one of the, this is one of the, the greatest quoted examples out there of people who are, are saying, look, like Jesus's message isn't for people who are perfect. <laughs> Jesus's message and his redemption and his salvation is for people who don't have it all together. And, um, and I, I was just kind of going back on what you were saying earlier about like your sins are forgiven. I, I almost wonder if you went back and looked at any, every time he said that, because almost every time he healed somebody, he said those words, like if you replaced it with like, you are, you are perfect the way I made you. And the things that you do, they don't change that about you. Like it, your identity is, is, isn't shaken by it. And I just think that he loves us. So he loves us despite our scum. <laughs> he sees the identity and the purity and the beauty of who we are. Um, even though it's, it's got some scum on it. He sees be, beyond that. Yeah, that's so good. And, and thinking about, uh, the, again, the two different reactions he has here with Matthew, the person you expect him to be repelled by, he's warm and welcoming and eager to spend time with. Um, and with those that you would normally expect Jesus to sort of curry favor with, um, he would want an invitation to one of their homes. He's quite edgy. He's hard with them, again, because they have this poser veneer that is going to keep them from real redemption if it's not deconstructed by Jesus. And meanwhile, Matthew, um, I think that you see the same, you, uh, this same pattern of people that Jesus calls. It's, it's really curious that so many of them immediately respond to his call. Like they, they drop their way of living to follow him. So many of them do this and you wonder, is this just because it's a Bible story? You know, is this the sort of thing that only happens in the Bible? Because, of course, it's Jesus, and he has this aura around him. And so if he invites you, you just drop everything and follow him. I think it's more human than that. I think Jesus reached people who knew that the answer to their question about whether they're enough, they had already answered it a million times over inside saying, nope, I'm not. Nope, I'm not. I'm not enough. I'm haunted by this question. And when Jesus approaches them and treats them with a kind of unbelievable respect, unbelievable invitation, 
I think it floors them that, that somebody treats them maybe for the first time in their life as if whatever they have in there is enough, is actually enjoyable, is actually wanted by someone uh, who they greatly respect. It's this idea that you're invited and seen by someone that you have a fundamental respect for their standards. And all of a sudden, they're inviting you. They see something in you that they value that you can't even see in yourself. I think, I think Becky, you and I both have had these experiences where someone in our life or someone's in our life, um, in a shocking sort of way, sees things in us that we have missed ourselves. And then there's this tremendous, powerful, magnetic invitation that comes with that. And the invitation really in the end is to consider and enjoy ourselves what others uh, who are paying attention find in us. And I think that uh, that's what Jesus does with Matthew. He finds something in Matthew that Matthew didn't know was there. And when Jesus reflects back um, what is there in you that you didn't know was there, it has a powerful transforming experience. I don't know if you had a PS to any of that. Um, so that, uh, so here we have him again, sort of uh, both ways, reacting to the self-satisfied and self-loathing different ways. I thought we could uh, uh, focus on one last story here in Luke chapter seven. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's uh, in my Jesus-centered Bible, the, the subheading of this story is Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. And it starts in verse 36, and I'm gonna read this passage um, just so we get the whole flavor of it. Again, we're looking for how does Jesus respond to those who have, who have falsely answered the question, yeah, I'm enough. And how does he respond to those who are honestly wrestling with that question? So here we go. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard that he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. And then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet and she wiped them off with her hair. And then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. But when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Well, Jesus answered the man's thoughts. He said, Simon, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. And then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Well, Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't even greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she's anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and there are many of them, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only a little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. And the men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We'll come back to that last little line that he says there, go in peace at the end of the podcast here. But but what do you pick up here, Becky, as, you, as uh, we dive into this story? Again, he's speaking to two different audiences here uh, who both have the same question inside. One answers it, yep, I'm good. And the other has clearly answered it, yeah, I, I've got nothing. <laughs> so what do you see in his reactions to, uh, to, in both ways? I had hoped that you would choose this story when we uh, decided to do this topic because um, she is just quintessential of, of that shift that happens when I think there's, she embodies both, am I, in, am I ever going to be enough because I've done, I've gone too far. I, I can't be saved. Surely I'm not the kind of person who could ever receive true freedom and salvation. And two, she is so 
she's so much in this scene, right? Mm -hmm. It's so dramatic. It's yes. like, it's like so much like, and I, I just, I, she is like, she's too much for everybody in this situation. It's, mm. she's too much inappropriate, too much emotion, too much drama. Like she's so all in. She's just like, I, I am abandoned to this. And, and we also know that she goes on to have a powerful ministry that is, I think probably only like snippets are given in the Bible of, of who she ends up being for, um, or what she does in ministry and, 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 and part of our overall story with the Bible. I'm sure that there's way more that we'll find out about later about this woman who just, she literally was in this cage and, and she, she just, she got let out and she had been in there for so long that when she got out and she tasted freedom, she just couldn't hold herself back. Um, and he points to her and he's just like, you are, you are divinely perfect in being, and you're enough and, and you're not too much. I, I love everything that you're doing right now. And there, and immediately after this story in chapter eight of Luke, it transitions into um, a section that's headed women who follow Jesus. <laughs> so, so at, right out of this experience, um, not only this woman, but other women who had been similarly, similarly impacted by Jesus are part of his entourage, are part of those who follow him closely. And, and you think about, so let's take her first here too, since you started off that way. Um, she's, she's in a place where she hasn't, she's not known as a woman who has committed immoral acts. She's known as an immoral woman. Like her whole identity has been summed up by immoral. It's not that you've done bad things, that you are a bad thing. And it doesn't get any worse than that when you're considering, am I enough or will I ever be enough? How can I ever possibly be enough if the word that describes the essence of who I am is immoral? Uh, it's impossible for me then. And yet when she is too much, what we know is Jesus absolutely relishes the too muchness of her. He absolutely enjoys it and makes sure that his hosts know that what she's done that they think is too much is just about right as far as he's concerned. He loves it. Um, he thinks what she's doing is profound and beautiful. And what he does to the immoral woman then is not just forgive her sins, but restore her identity into an identity that is clean from that. When he forgives her sins, he's actually saying, your identity is now cleansed. You are no longer known by the name immoral. That was a false construct in the first place that was, that was uh, put upon you and glued to you and made, to, made for you to feel like it would never be able to be separated from who you really are. Um, there's a, uh, one of the students in my uh, little uh, home youth group that we have every week, his name is Logan. And this, this week uh, we were talking about um, when Jesus sent out the disciples two by two for the first time without him and how he stripped them of all of their uh, comforts and things that they would normally rely upon. Can't take any money or change of clothing. You can't arrange where you're going to be staying, things like that. And in his, in Logan's little discussion group, we were, we were discussing, well, what does Jesus believe? And in their group, they said, well, Jesus believes in minimalism, <laughs> meaning that he believes in taking all this stuff away. And as we explored what that meant, what we were talking about is how Jesus made the, the disciples dependent on him by taking away all those things. And Logan, at the end of this discussion, said something really profound. He said, um, um, he said, I think that everyone is a real person, has a real you inside of them. It's not like it has to be constructed. It's already there. But what happens is that we, each of us have different, uh, different numbers of layers that we have kind of shellacked on top of that real you. Um, multiple, multiple layers. Some people have so many layers, they've forgotten who they really are. They, they have lost touch with what's underneath all of those wrapped layers. And he, he said, what I think Jesus does in, in these sort of minimalist ways, 
where he strips people of the control they usually have of their lives is he's trying to strip away those layers so that the real person can be accessed. And I thought that was brilliant. And I think in, and this is also what Jesus is doing here in interacting with this woman. He is recognizing that her layers are stripped away in this moment, that, that he has access to the real heart of this woman. And then he renames her in this moment. He celebrates what she does. And that simultaneously, he's speaking to the Simon who represents those who are quite comfortable with their many layers of shellac on top of their real person. And he's trying to puncture those layers. He's trying to say, this woman is in a good place because her layers have been stripped away. You're in a horrible, dangerous place because you're holding on to your layers and you're defending your right to have them. And you're, you're in a dangerous place because you'll never be desperate and grateful enough for the forgiveness of your debt to come to me. As long as you're self-satisfied, you'll never come to me. And that puts you in a dangerous place. So when we think about how Jesus is answering this question, will I ever be enough? He is really, we, we find our answer to that. Really, this is going to sound cliched, but we find it in him. He's not going to tell us um, a string of kind, descriptive words that are supposed to help us finally embrace who we are. No, instead, he is going to offer us his heart and invite us into it, <laughs> to live and abide in him. We can't find greater acceptance about who we are than to be invited to live in the heart of Jesus. So he's invited by Matthew to come into his home. And that's a picture, really, of what our life with him is like as well. When we are stripped enough that, like Matthew, we say, Jesus, will you come to my home? And in this case, live there for the night. Um, and Jesus comes and lives in Matthew's home. And this is what he's doing with us. He's saying, um, uh, no matter what the exterior of you is, I'm coming to live there for the night. And in our case, I'm coming to live there forever <laughs> in your home. And uh, because I come to live there, you will always be enough. And by the way, I'm coming to your home tonight because I enjoy you. I see you for who you are. So I thought it was interesting, too, that you brought out here, Becky, that you started to touch on the am I too much part of this. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about that, about you know, uh, uh, what kind of leverage that has in our life and what impact it has when we wrestle with that question. So the, the simplest way that I can explain this is I remember this moment when I was like junior high and I love being like, I'm a water bug. Like I, I was in the pool all the time. I was a swimmer. I was a water polo player. I was a surfer. Like I love the water. And I would go to a pool party and I would just be like in the pool <laughs> as soon as we got there, like running in the pool, jumping in, playing whatever, Marco Polo, all of it, loved it. And um, I, but I remember I was in junior high and, you know, in junior high, you start to notice like boys and boys start, you start having like boy girl parties. And I noticed that all of the girls that got the boys attention didn't get in the pool they would, they didn't want to get their hair messed up and their makeup and their outfit. And so they would, you know, sit outside the pool and they would stay pretty. And I was like, oh, well, maybe that's maybe like what, who I am, this, you know, jumping in the water isn't like cool. Mm. <laughs> and so I stopped doing it and I started, you know, acting like them. And, and to me, I think that's, it's like, it, I, I just, I see it happening like around that age where like you start to learn these little things that like, oh, the way that you act, that trueness in you, it's not cool. <laughs> and so you start to make these shifts and, and the, the, you do it more and more. And by the time you become an adult, I think you're, you're kind of confused about who, who your core identity was in the first place because you've gotten so used to putting all of, on all of this perfection and putting on all of these um, expectations and quieting down your voice, um, 
you know, my mom used to tell me, like, she used to say to me, like, hey, Becky, um, you shouldn't be so opinionated because boys won't like that. Mm. Um, and, and I know a lot of women who have shared that, that they were kind of natural born leaders and they had strong opinions and, um, and they were very decisive in their personalities. And they were told by someone that, that if they did that, that boys wouldn't want to go out with them and that that was wrong. Um, and so I think that's part of it. It's like this identity shaping kind of comes along and then, and then along with it, right along with it, it's, it's twin cousin is who you are is not enough. You have to really work hard at this perfection all the time because who you are truly isn't enough. And, mm. and I think all those little things um, just start to add up over time and it just gets really confusing. Yeah. You know, uh, I was thinking as you were talking about your story um, that I, I grew up in a home where the emotions were always modulated. It was a very flat affect home that I grew up in. And um, I learned always to manage myself out of that, manage my emotions, manage my persona, manage everything. And then I got married. <laughs> and then, and then the, a lot of those shells were challenged um, around me. And as I began to, uh, even prior to getting married, as I started on this journey, as I began to kind of come out of this modulated reality of my childhood and started trying to explore who I really was, I, I started to get messages from other people that I was just too much, that somehow as I was coming out of into freedom, that this was too much of an expression. And you, and you pinpointed this really well in this story of the quote unquote immoral woman, that everyone in that place except for Jesus thought what she was doing was too much, but Jesus thought it was just right. And let me go one step further. What I've learned in my life to this point that has changed my life is that Jesus is saying to me every day, as he said to this woman, you're not only not too much, I want more. You haven't, this is going to make me cry, you haven't yet pressed the accelerator down on you the way I would like to enjoy you. So I want more freedom, not less. I want you more emergent, not less. In fact, when those people around you say that you're too much, I'm standing right there saying, you're not enough right now. I want more. It's a different way of seeing that question, am I enough? Jesus takes that and redeems it by saying, I love and enjoy so much what is in you that I want even more of that. And it's, you are never too much for me, is what Jesus is trying to say. And I think that's core to his redemptive message. We mentioned before that at the end of, of this story with this woman, he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And we think go in peace is sort of this throwaway line. But you mentioned uh, Jada Pinkett Smith uh, in the last time we were uh, together on a podcast. And she was just on the Colbert Show uh, this last week. And uh, I, I just happened to be watching that night when she was on as a guest. And she said something, it was, by the way, I think the most enjoyable interview I've seen him do with anyone, because she was a real person. I was really struck by her. But she said something toward the end of the interview. Um, he had mentioned that she had referenced that she was, had had a new understanding and definition of what happiness is in her life, and that she feels like she's, at, for the first time in her life, happy. So he asked her to describe what happiness meant. And she said, well, before I thought happiness was tied to pleasure, but what I've learned is that happiness is really not about pleasure, it's about peace. And for the first time in my life, I'm at peace with myself. And I think this is, she is saying what Jesus was trying to communicate to this woman. She's saying, you can go now in peace because, because your sins have been forgiven, your faith has saved you, you can enjoy the happiness of peace with yourself. You who have been identified as immoral your whole, your, your whole adult life, now you can live in peace because you've come to peace with this question, am I really enough? How, do, how, do, how does that definition that Jada Pinkett Smith gave, how does that resonate with you, Becky? Well, the baking soda of, of worry is peace. And 
peace comes from within. It's a fruit of the spirit. It's not something that we can actually do ourselves. <laughs> it's, it's a direct reflection of the Holy Spirit working in us. And it's the antidote to, to anxiety and, and it's the antidote to worry. Um, you can't, I don't think you can tell yourself, don't worry. You know, I mean, <laughs> Jesus said it a lot, but I, it, <laughs> to tell someone like when someone tells me like, well, just don't worry about it. It's just, it's like grading on the chalkboard. Like, okay, well, exactly. How do you do that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so dependence on Jesus is how you get the spirit flowing through you. And it's a direct result of attachment. And so peace comes from the Holy Spirit and just being attached and saying, I can't handle everything. I can't handle what I'm doing. I can't handle my marriage. I can't handle my kids. I can't control my home. I can't control any of this. And so I need you deeply and wholly. I need you um, to overcome my struggles and take away my shortcomings and help me when I fail. Um, and I think, I think in that, in that definition that you're giving there, that in the end, um, uh, it comes down to this as far as maturity, maturing as a follower of Jesus. We begin, we, we know we're maturing when we begin to trust his voice about us more than we trust our own voice about us or the voices of those around us who are contrary to us. We begin to trust what he thinks about us and the truth that he enjoys us and wants to come to our house for dinner tonight though those around us might call us scum, <laughs> as they did Matthew, when we start to trust that that's a real reaction from Jesus, that he really does enjoy us and wants to come live with us. In John 14, he tells his disciples, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. He's saying here, the kind of peace I give is not the kind of peace that you crave or others try to give you. Oh, Becky, I think that outfit looks great on you today. Oh, Becky, you're so smart. You're, you get so much done. You're so creative. All of these things matter, but they matter uh, like nuclear fission. It quickly diminishes in its impact on us. But there's a peace Jesus gives that never diminishes. It's the way he reflects back on us what he enjoys about us. And in John 16, um, it's interesting because th this is his last instructions to his disciples, and he's telling them what's about to happen to them. And he's saying some pretty brutal things, but at the same time, he's saying um, that, that the Father himself loves you dearly because you love me and believe that I came from, from God. He's really getting to the core of things here. The core of our peace and the peace he's leaving with them is that they love Jesus, <laughs> that they can't stop loving him. And this is the, the, the foundation of their peace going forward in the midst of all of the things that are about to happen to them. He, he reveals to them that their passion for him is what is going to bring them true peace that will answer that question inside. Any last, uh, any last little exclamation mark here on this whole theme? today becky anything any stray thought that you've left you are totally enough with jesus there you have it that's a good thing to remember and a simple thing to remember well gang thanks for listening you, remember you can check out the jesus-centered bible from which these nine essential questions were drawn in the first place check out the 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 four gospels where these questions are explored and how jesus answers each one of them uh, check it out. You can go to um, uh, group.com and search for the Jesus Center Bible, or you can uh, go to lifetree.com. You'll find it there as well. Or just search for the Jesus Center Bible and you'll, you'll find it. You can also go to paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com and you'll, you're going to be looking for season four, episode 32. You can look for the links there. That's another easy way to access it. But if you don't have a Jesus Center Bible or know someone who you think would really love one that there's how you can grab one uh, to uh, follow one of those links and you can also find links to the other things we talked about today including andrew osingo's brilliant album the painted desert uh, so go there and find a link to that and uh we're going to explore uh, one more sort of overtime 
essential question next week. I won't tell you what it is, but I'm excited to pursue this last one. And then in a couple of weeks from now, uh, Becky and I will start the first episode of a new series. So uh, hopefully we'll see you in a couple of weeks as well. So this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe to it on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll talk again next time.